Hi, I'm Marta Belcher, the chair and president of the Filecoin Foundation. We're on a mission to preserve humanity's most important information and create the internet of everyone. I'm here on the edge of NFT, the podcast putting important Web3 information into your headphones. So keep listening. Hey there, NFT curious listeners. Stay tuned for today's episode and find out how today's guest has brought her ability to make extraordinarily complex concepts easy to understand to the world of blockchain. And why time is today's guest's best friend. And why in the future, someone might just drop important legal notices right into your MetaMask wallet. All this and more on today's episode. And don't forget, we put together a little soiree called NFTLA just a few months back that brought out thousands of the world's most innovative doers in the NFT space. Head to 2023.nftla.live to get on the whitelist for tickets to our bigger, bolder, better, but also just as intimate and impactful event happening in Los Angeles, March 20th to the 23rd, 2023. See you there. Welcome to The Edge of NFT with your hosts, Jeff Kelly, Ethan Janney, and Josh Krieger. The podcast that brings you the top 1% of NFTs today and what will stand the test of time. We explore the nuts and bolts and the business side, and also the human element of how NFTs are changing the way we interact with the things we love. This podcast is for the dreamers, disruptors, and doers who are pumped about this ecosystem and driving where it goes next. Today's episode features Marta Belcher, president and chair of Filecoin Foundation. Besides her role at Filecoin Foundation, Marta is the general counsel and head of policy at Protocol Labs and also serves as special counsel to the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Marta is a pioneer in cryptocurrency law and has spoken on the topic around the world, including in the US Congress, European Parliament, New York Senate, the OECD, and in Davos during the World Economic Forum. Marta has drafted amicus briefs in the U.S. Supreme Court and U.S. appellate courts for high-profile public interest organizations, including EFF, the Center for Democracy and Technology, Public Knowledge, the Cato Institute, the National Consumers League, Project Gutenberg, and the Blockchain Association. Marta has been recognized twice by the Financial Times Innovative Lawyer Awards, was named to Law 360's list of top attorneys under 40, and was number 18 on Crypto Weekly's list of most influential women in crypto. Filecoin Foundation is an independent organization that facilitates governance of the Filecoin network and supports the growth of the Filecoin ecosystem and the decentralized web. Marta, welcome to Edge of NFT. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here today and talk all about NFTs. I mean, what do you do with all your time, Marta? Jeez. <laughs> I know. Get busy, huh? <laughs> well, I will tell you guys, I originally met Marta in church. But so <laughs> I know she goes to church, but it's not the church you might think of. We'll let her talk a little bit more about that. But yeah, it's great to have you on the show, Marta. And like, what an honor. This pulls on our heartstrings because Jeff and I got into crypto with Filecoin. Like it made sense to us as like the first no brainer sort of thing that we got involved in, in the entire space, we had done some decentralization in our food tech business. And it was like a logical thing that this should be available to every human being on earth in every company. So it's really an honor to have you here. 
Well, it's honestly such an honor to be here. And it was definitely very funny to meet you in a church because I really think of that as sort of the ultimate centralized institution. So we thought it was a great place to host the, what we called the decentralized web gateway during Davos this past May and hosted it in the sanctuary there. Church is also, according to some, the first franchise operation. There you go. That's well put. That's a good point. Maybe more decentralized than I'm giving it credit for. <laughs> but, but it was very cool to meet you there in Davos. And we'll be back there hosting the decentralized web gateway again at the sanctuary in Davos in January. And so hopefully I'll see you again, Josh, IRL. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's possible, man. But the umbrellas were clutch. So thank you for those. And I'm thinking there's got to be some good hand warmers or something associated with the next one. So good reason for people to get over to church. But let's get to the story at hand, which is sort of what Filecoin is up to and how you all play into this world of magical, non-fungible projects. And starting with like a little bit of the origin story, maybe you can kind of kick it off there, kind of go back to 2017. What was going on? Yeah. So when it comes to Filecoin, I think I had the same experience with you, which is it just makes sense. And the thing that is so cool about Filecoin is that it's not really just about cryptocurrency. It's about building the next generation of the web. And so just to give sort of the background on what Filecoin is and how it works, for me, I think the most important thing about cryptocurrency is that it creates this ability to program your money. So being able to write computer code where you can automatically transfer value when a condition is met, it has always made sense to me as a former intellectual property lawyer, just in the IP world, to give you an example, you could say, well, for every second of a song that I play, automatically transfer one one millionth of a cent to the singer and one one millionth of a cent to the songwriter. And that can all happen instantly and automatically with no intermediary between us across the world, which just isn't tenable using the traditional payment systems. And so with Filecoin, we use that same programmable money technology to create a decentralized file storage network. So the idea is if you have extra storage space on your computer hardware, you can rent it out to others who will pay you to store their files or rather pieces of their files. And a computer program will regularly check those files are still being stored on your computer. And if so, will automatically compensate you with cryptocurrency. So we like to compare it to Airbnb for file storage. Storage providers are renting out their extra storage space to earn Filecoin and users are spending Filecoin to store their files on other people's computers. It's such a helpful explainer. And I guess the question comes to mind is like, which individual or group was like hanging out and came up with this idea? Well, this is all Juan. So initially Juan had developed back in 2014, had developed IPFS, the interplanetary file system which is really the backbone of the decentralized web, this decentralized storage system. The issue with IPFS and all decentralized storage systems is how do you actually incentivize people to provide that decentralized storage, right? It's one thing if you have the ability to do storage in a decentralized way, but you actually need to provide incentives for people to provide that storage. Basically, the question is who's going to shoulder the cost of the infrastructure for this decentralized version of the web. If you're trying to create a decentralized version of AWS, but you don't have Amazon to go 
work with their customers? How do you do that? And so that is really what Filecoin was the answer to, was the ability to actually incentivize people to provide storage and make it available. And that really is sort of the key that has unlocked this ability to have a decentralized version of the web, which I think Filecoin really sounds like a niche use case, but it's actually really a foundational technology, I think, for this decentralized version of the web where you can create alternative to really the three services that make up the vast majority of storage on today's internet from Amazon, Microsoft, and Google, and not have the issues where you see one of these companies suffer blackouts and have vast swaths of the web go down for hours and not have these sort of single points of failure. So that's the idea behind Filecoin. Yeah. I mean, we think about all the stuff we store in our houses and how much space that takes up, but we don't think about the massive amount of storage that's required for all these converging technologies. Exactly. And you don't really think about it until there's an outage. And we've like repeatedly seen like AWS go down and like suddenly people's like toasters stop working, you know, like their network toasters or whatever, and news sites go down. Like you suddenly realize when you see these blackouts, how much of our web infrastructure is dependent on just a couple of companies. And so we really believe that you can create a much better version of the web if you combine the storage capacity and computing power on all of our individual devices into like a supercomputer network and store multiple copies of the data across those devices. Because on that decentralized version of the internet, websites are going to stay up even if some nodes fail. And the availability of information isn't dependent on any one server or company. So it's a much more robust platform for what we say is humanity's most important information. Yeah, it's interesting. I think part of the reason why it spoke to us, like when we first heard about it, definitely has to do with collaborative consumption, the idea of excess capacity and working on that. But also, I think clearly things like Kazaa, Napster and BitTorrent and all those, even though some of them grew out of like maybe dubious structures, ultimately it was collaborative consumption, right? People are storing this stuff on their computers and you're getting bits and pieces of it from everywhere. I mean, that's what was happening in the early 2000s. And it's just interesting how it's evolved and how disruptive that really was then with blockchain really coming into its own. It was just such an obvious use case for us, such a great fit. And of course, amazing execution because there were a lot of companies that had conveyed similar visions across a number of different verticals in blockchain coming out of that time period. And it was awesome to see Filecoin just completely crush it and continue to. So that's great. Now, your background is in copyright, IP law, And to a large degree, I mean, this is a really relevant topic for us in the world of NFTs. And I was hoping you might be able to give us a little bit of background, kind of the basics of copyright and IP law as it relates to NFTs and ownership. I have to say, we we don't get the opportunity to sit down with somebody that has a background such as yours and willingness really to speak on it. A lot of people aren't willing to talk about it because maybe they don't feel comfortable. Please indulge us. Yes, absolutely. I'd be delighted to talk about that. I So I was formerly an intellectual property litigator. So I did a bunch of copyright cases. And that really was sort of what led me into the world of cryptocurrency back in 2015 when I got interested in this space. And it has been actually a really useful... It turns out that being an IP lawyer turns out to be very useful in the cryptocurrency space even though I think of myself now as more of a cryptocurrency lawyer than a copyright lawyer. But once upon a time, I was a copyright lawyer. And so the idea with copyright is that it's a body of law that protects creative works. 
And one thing that I think a lot of people don't realize is that you in the US under US law, you actually automatically get copyright in a work as soon as you create that work. So if you go and you scribble down something on a piece of paper, you actually have a copyright on that thing that you scribbled. And you can go and register that copyright and that will get you some additional benefits, but you don't actually have to go and register a copyright in order to have protection for a particular artwork. All you have to do is create it. One of the things that is really important in the NFT space is understanding what the difference is between transferring copyright and transferring an NFT. So you can transfer, you as the creator of a particular creative work can transfer copyright to someone else using just a standard contract. And you can actually transfer the copyright to someone else. You can say, I don't own it anymore and you own it now. Or something you can do is you can license copyright. So you can say, I still own the copyright to this particular artistic work, but you other people can use it in any particular way that you decide to write a license to do that, right? And this is all governed by contract law. So this is really comes down to what do you and others contractually agree that you can do with the particular work? So there's a lot to be said about, I think, how copyright licensing works in the real world. But when you get into NFTs, it gets super confusing because I think people think that when you have an NFT, and you are buying an NFT, I think the conception is, well, you're buying the underlying work or you're buying rights to the underlying work. But in actuality, and this is the headline, buying an NFT has nothing to do with buying the rights to use or have the underlying work. Those are two totally separate things. So when you buy an NFT, what you're buying is basically being associated on a blockchain ledger with a particular representation of a piece of work or a thing that points to a piece of work. You are not necessarily buying and you are not by default buying rights to use that work. You are not buying the copyright itself. And so you can, if you want, as the owner of a particular work, you can, as part of selling an NFT, also license the rights to the buyer in a contract, you can say the buyer of this NFT can use this work in X, Y, and Z ways. They can't use it commercially, but they can use it personally. Maybe they can display it in their home, but they can't display it on the street. Or you could transfer the entire copyright of the work to the NFT buyer, but you don't have to. And so what this really comes down to is actually contract law. It's really just what are you putting in the terms and conditions when you're buying a particular NFT? And that is something that I think a lot of people are confused about, about this idea of, well, I've bought an NFT, what do I actually own? And so the answer is by default, nothing. But what you have to do is go look at the particular contracts that govern this transaction and see, okay, what did I actually buy when I bought the NFT? Do I now have rights to display the work? Do I now have rights to use the work commercially? Do I own the copyright now? And so that's something that, again, I think is just really not well understood. Yeah, I tell you, it's easy to forget. I think when you're in the world of Web3, NFTs, blockchain, that there's this really rich history, legally speaking, in almost any category you can think of about how these businesses operate, this included, right? Because you kind of get in this idea, we're doing something really disruptive here, it's brand new and this and that, but the reality is there is that precedent there and you have to rely on it in a lot of ways. I'm curious if you heard of the situation that Seth Green has encountered where he bought a board ape, where I believe, generally speaking, we have this as an example that a buyer can use the likeness of the ape 
how they want. That's how they've conveyed it. But he says that, and if we believe him, that his ape was stolen, he was hacked, and somebody stole that ape. Now, of course, proving that that is actually what happened may be tricky, but in that case, somebody else has that ape in their wallet, and it was transferred from one wallet to another. Seth claims that it was stolen from him, which we have no reason not to believe him, but it's very hard to prove. I'm curious, if that person popped up or somebody started using that, that IP on their own, what do you think about that, A, and B, since he doesn't own that ape anymore, he actually has a movie that's a TV series that's built around that particular ape. And he's actually using the likeness in that series. It's a central character of this kind of hybrid, almost Roger Rabbit type series. And i um, curious as to your thoughts on this really interesting case. Yeah, super interesting. So I'm not super familiar with all of the gory details. So I definitely don't want to make representations as to not to be such a lawyer, but I don't want to, yeah, <laughs> I don't want to talk about of the course. specifics. You know, um, this podcast is I, shall not be taken as legal advice. Yeah, now you can say whatever advice. you want. <laughs> or, right, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think what I would say about that is a couple things. Like the things that that brings up for me are like, I think there are like a couple of different interesting things to say. One interesting thing about that is, I think, again, so who is the original owner of the copyright? Originally, the copyright is owned by the person who creates the work, right? The company that creates Sport Apes, right? And the actual artist. So then when someone buys the NFT, there's a question there as to, okay, what did the buyer of the NFT actually buy? So one thing they bought is the fact that this blockchain ledger will reflect that they are the owner of this NFT. They definitely bought that. And now suddenly this blockchain ledger does no longer reflect that. It reflects whoever stole this board ape NFT, right? But you'd have to go look at the particular terms, conditions, the license to say, well, what actually did the buyer buy? And typically with board apes, right? They... I think have done a pretty good job of doing relatively open licensing around the actual images to enable people to use those. But let's imagine it weren't a board ape. Let's imagine that it were a crypto kitty. So with crypto kitties, it was really interesting. When you bought a crypto kitty, you would actually get a license to use the image of that crypto kitty, but only in non-commercial ways or commercial ways up to $100,000. So if you were the person who actually owned the CryptoKitty, you could post that CryptoKitty picture on social media. You could even use it in a very small commercial thing and only making up to $100,000 because that's what the contract said you could do. So then there's a really interesting question like, okay, literally depending on how you write the contract, well, now if that gets passed along to the next person, do you still retain those rights? And the answer to that literally just comes down to contract law. Um, you know, you can actually look at what the contract says and figure out if then you pass that along to the next person, do you still get to use it with up to $100,000 per year? And that really, again, comes down to really what's in the contracts. And so what you're seeing now is a bunch of really interesting ways in which NFT creators are creating different kind of standardized like licenses where we can actually start putting rules and standards and norms around how you do these transactions in a way that makes it a little clearer what's going on. Because one of the things that happens when we talk about what happens with a copyright in a particular NFT case is that the answer is, well, what does the contract say? 
you know, requires a lot more lawyering than I think would be ideal in a Web3 environment. Yeah. So interesting, these cases, man. Well, yeah, I mean, and of course, this is to come. And I think that's why we think the space is exciting because there's going to be a lot of evolution. But it's also like, if you can make the smart contract say some of the things, then they can be automated, right? And you don't have to worry about lawyers and people enforcing it or, or whatever. But all the details, right, take a lot to enforce them, <laughs> depending on the actual details of the contract. So, I mean, that brings me to my question, which is I'm a creator. I spent a lot of time with creative people who make things and they just love to make things. That's all they want to do. You know, they don't want to work out all the details of if that's licensed for one year or two or up to $100,000 or all this stuff. So the idea of an NFT is that it's a way to, for an artist to monetize what they're doing, or at least a new avenue for monetization that potentially cuts out the middlemen. I mean, it's a complicated question. So I want to know what some of the implications are there for like IP buyers and sellers and NFT artists. But I'd love for you to speak a little bit about on how much this does or doesn't actually solve the problem of the artist who, in the end, they're going to have to maybe think about this contract law anyway. And maybe there's going to be a middleman who's a lawyer who has to write the contract who wants their own percentage. And maybe they set up that contract. You know, I don't know. What are your thoughts on how this all plays out? Yeah. Well, I think there's a couple of really interesting points that go along with what you're saying here. One is I think that NFTs are so fantastic for creators because one of the things that allows you to do is to continue to receive payments and royalties as transfers happen downstream in a way that isn't possible outside of this digital context, right? So typically if I've sold a painting to you, a physical painting, and I'm the artist, I've made whatever I've made out of that transaction. And then when you turn around and sell it for 10X a couple of years later, because now I'm super famous, too bad for me. I made what I made in the first instance, right? And so one of the things to me that is so cool about NFTs is that it gives you the ability to actually program in no, no, no. Every time there's an additional transaction, the original artist is going to get a percentage of that NFT revenue. And so I think that is one of the things to me that's so exciting about NFTs for creators. And one of the reasons that I think this technology is so important. Another thing I would say about that is fundamentally, this comes down to you're typically selling an NFT using some sort of platform. So what this all really comes down to is, well, what are the platforms developing in terms of what are their standard licenses? How are they developing the terms and conditions such that when you go on that platform, you can very easily figure out what you're actually conveying to the buyer? And so it doesn't necessarily require you as a creator of an NFT to go and talk to a lawyer. I think ideally we live in a world where we have these platforms that have really thought about this. And super ideally, we would live in a world where platforms have collaborated and created standard licenses that make it really clear and apparent what rights are being conveyed in a very English legible way. And I have a lot to say about that and happy to dive into that at some point. And I'm always really encouraging platforms to use the Creative Commons license for that reason. But I think that's the other thing I would say is I think ideally we have a license structure where it's very apparent to you as the creator what what you're actually conveying. And I think it's all of these efforts right now are really important to make it very standardized. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Like having a great platform that helps with those details, right? Not just what's the 
revenue share on future trades, but kind of what kind of contract are you putting in place? And what are the details and what might you not have thought of? And just check these boxes, choose these options. It it does seem like that's a great next step to develop those things. Yeah. And just to add to that, it also needs to be interoperable with other platforms, licenses, right? Like if I sell to you on this platform, but then you sell to someone else on this platform, fundamentally, when you're trying to figure out, okay, who has the rights to what, you have to be able to kind of follow the license. And if the terms of the second one, just the standardized terms of the second platform are totally irreconcilable with the terms of the first one, you're going to create a lot of confusion and it will become unclear really what's been conveyed. So I think there's also this really important thing about NFT platforms really getting together and standardizing. And one of the things you can do, again, I'll dive into this at some point, but one of the things you can do there is actually just use Creative Commons license, which are already kind of a universal standard. Very cool. Yeah, really interesting. So you touched on this, but for like artists and creators listening, how can they sell their work without selling IP rights and use licenses for others to use their art for different purposes? Yeah. So this is one of the things that I actually find so super cool about NFTs. So typically, if you're a digital creator, you might end up making money from retaining IP to a work and licensing it out or selling the IP to a particular work. But one of the things that is so cool about NFTs is, as I've mentioned, selling the NFT has absolutely nothing to do with selling the copyright to the underlying work. And so for me, coming from a world of where I really see the value of things being put in the public domain, one of the things that's really awesome about NFTs is you can actually dedicate your underlying work to the public domain. Like you can actually sort of give up your copyright in it. And at the same time, still sell the NFT and make money from it, which I think is so incredibly cool. And so that's something that I've really been encouraging people to explore is figuring out how you can sell your NFT. And then at the same time, just actually commit your underlying work that you've created either to the public domain or openly license it in some way, make it available to the public to use and to remix and to do cool things with, and at the same time, make money by selling the NFT. So I think that's one of the things that's really cool about NFTs that's really been underexplored because this concept of the NFT sale being separate from conveying the IP rights is not well understood. So let me just unpack that a little bit. Because my first instinct was like, that sounds like it sucks. I created something. I'm going to let anybody use it for free, whatever they want. Play it on the radio a million times. All I have is NFT. <laughs> and somebody could be making a ton of money of it, put this thing on t-shirts. Da, da, da. They're making millions of dollars. I'm not getting anything out of it. But I think the sort of direction you're going in there is that people will value the underlying NFT for a work that goes viral and makes a lot of money for plenty of people, right? I mean, that's the idea because otherwise that doesn't work, right? Otherwise you've given away the farm and you've got maybe an NFT that somebody decides they want to throw away, I mean, whatever, right? Am I kind of interpreting the details there, right? Yeah, exactly. It's like what makes an NFT valuable. And sometimes maybe what makes the NFT valuable is the license to the IP rights that you get. But I think often that's actually not what makes the NFT valuable, right? And buying an NFT is really more about the value of collectibles or the value of 
being the person whose name is associated with a particular piece of art in the same way as, for example, let's say you own the painting Starry Night. Like you don't own the copyright in that. In fact, it's out of copyright. It's in the public domain. But nonetheless, it is a very valuable thing to own that painting. And so the thing that's cool is rather than waiting the hundred years until your life plus 70 for the copyright to go into public domain, you can either put it in the public domain now or just openly license it. Like maybe you can license it under, for example, you could license it under a creative commons license where people have to still give you credit, but they can use it sort of however they want. And you can openly license this thing and then still make money from the sale of the NFT, which I think is just absolutely awesome. And I really would encourage people in the NFT space to think about how you can do that and to really think about openly licensing their works, maybe under Creative Commons or just putting it into the public domain. Right. And so that's Creative Commons license, right? That we're talking about What are great resources for people? I mean, obviously, there's a ton of information out there around IP, copyright law and whatnot, but not like what we're talking about here. And you're speaking about it so eloquently. Do you have a resource or some talks that you've done or anything you've made available to folks to help them navigate this really particular area that could be so beneficial to creators? Yeah. So I think speaking about Creative Commons, which I've mentioned a few times now, I think in the sort of copyright world... Creative Commons, this problem that NFT owners and creators are having is not a new one. Like there is this idea of, I have this work, I want to license it in a particular way. How do I do that without needing to enter into individual contracts with every single person who wants to use my artwork, right? What are the ways that I can allow people to use my works in the ways that I want them to use it, but not the ways I don't want them to use it? And so this is a problem that has been facing people long before NFTs came around. And so what Creative Commons has done is it has basically created a suite of standardized human readable licenses that allow you to basically very easily label a particular work and say, this particular work is licensed under, just to give you an example, CC BY, CCBY is um, one example. You might literally just put a little stamp on it that says CCBY. And then everyone knows, having seen that CCBY stamp in the metadata or on the work itself, that it's licensed under those particular terms. And you can go to the Creative Commons website and you can see the human readable version of, okay, what does that mean? And in the example of CC by that particular license means that people can basically use the work however they want, as long as they give you attribution. And so they know, okay, I have to give the creator attribution. And there are a bunch of other licenses. There's different creative commons licenses for, do you want to use something commercially? Can people use it commercially or non-commercially? There's also the ability to, via creative commons license, put something, basically say that something's in the public domain effectively. And so having that standard suite of licenses, I think is something that has been extremely underutilized by the NFT community. And I think a couple important pieces there. One is I think that as platforms are developing ways in which they are doing these licenses, creating these new licenses for NFTs, I think that they should heavily lean on Creative Commons licenses rather than trying to recreate the wheel. And I also think, as I've said, that creators should actually be leaning on Creative Commons licenses to look at how they can enable the public to use their works, even as they sell the NFT. So big fan of Creative Commons, and you can check out the Creative Commons website as a resource for that. 
Nice. And your forthcoming book on uh, creative commons, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Let's go. yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> we do a whole podcast series on creative commons, right? Now, this is cool. Super helpful stuff, though. And it's important. And we always say this. There's so many fundamentals to operating a business. This is one of those categories you really got to understand if you're going to create a sustainable business for the long term. And so everybody that's you know starting businesses for the first time in the world of blockchain and crypto and Web3, they don't forget about the fundamentals. And this is one of those key pillars. So thank you for sharing that. Absolutely. Yes. Well, we know that book, when you put it out, we'll use some type of Creative Commons license. Um Exactly. I myself, in fact, do creative. So just to be clear, it absolutely will and does. I have written many papers that I have put a Creative Commons license onto. And if you go to just, for example, the Protocol Labs website, everything on our website is licensed under Creative Commons. So we really do heavily lean on Creative Commons to openly license things in the copyright world. We also openly license things in the patent world, but that's another story. But yes, I am also an avid Creative Commons user. Actually, I've told this story before as a side note. So my boyfriend in law school took a picture of a gavel and he put it up on the internet under a Creative Commons attribution license. So anyone can use this picture of a gavel and it will be available to them to use as long as they give him attribution. So he puts this on the internet and it turns out that journalists use Creative Commons all the time because they'll actually need a picture of something, right? And they need to be able to use it and have a really clear license to it. So they're constantly looking on Flickr and searching Flickr for what are the things that are Creative Commons licensed. And so it turns out that a picture of a gavel is actually extremely relevant for many, many, many articles about anything involving the law, any kind of criminal case or civil case. And he licensed it under CCBY. So they have to always give him attribution. And so I actually set up a Google news alert for him at one point, just like what's going to come up. And it turns out that it's just like a stream of multiple times a day, a new hit on some article about some like grisly murder or other crime, because this gavel picture is used all the time by journalists on blogs and newspaper articles because he Creative Commons licensed it. And it's a pretty good picture of a gavel. So anyway, I had to turn that off because I got sick of the grisly murder articles that his gavel picture was used for. But I think it goes to show why you as an artist or creator might want a Creative Commons license something or openly license something because actually then it can get used when it's really clear to people that this, how you as the creator want it to be used and they can automatically do that, it actually will get used. So that's just a sidebar on uh, <laughs> my personal experiences. With, that's with awesome. Oh my gosh. Yeah, yeah no, we're going to go too deep on this, but I just have to say, I sat next to a woman on the plane and this was early on in, in the podcast and what we were doing there, we were talking about NFTs and her boyfriend happened to be this artist where one of his things, I think he made an image explicitly as an art project like this. It's like him with his face in his hands or something like that. And the art project was, I think he put it as the Wikipedia article image of something, but it was open license. And the whole project was around following like exactly what happens to that image and all the different scenarios it gets used in and stuff. I can't remember his name. I was trying to find it, but maybe someone will bring it up. So I want to cut from that though. We got other stuff we want to talk about. I want to know how NFT storage works on Filecoin specifically. And also like what drives the value of the Filecoin token? Is it around that? Yeah, totally. 
So I mentioned earlier IPFS, which was created before Filecoin and Filecoin is basically built on top of IPFS. So IPFS stands for the Interplanetary File System. And the vast majority of NFTs are stored on IPFS. And the reason for that, in fact, there's this saying, people will say, if it's not on IPFS, it's not your NFT, right? And the idea is that imagine you are hosting your NFT and someone's created an NFT and they store it using some sort of centralized service like AWS, right? And then where they've stored it on this centralized server just stops working one day or someone stops paying that centralized server to host that image file. And that means that that NFT's associated image is no longer going to be available. And so that is really a problem, especially if you imagine some startup, right, that you've bought this NFT from and it goes under and suddenly the file associated with your NFT is no longer being stored. And so conceptually, right, the blockchain is pointing to a broken link. And so that's the problem with storing NFTs using centralized servers. I mean, if you paid a lot of money for something, you really don't want it to be dependent on some startups staying in business so it can pay its AWS bill. So the idea here is that decentralized storage on IPFS solved this problem because the availability of data on IPFS doesn't rely on any one server or company. So just to give you an idea of how IPFS works... So on today's internet, if I go to a particular web page, that information is being retrieved from a particular server somewhere in the world. And I'm looking for that particular web page in a particular place, and I'm hoping that it's still there. So I like to analogize this to imagining that you just read a really great book in physical hard copy, and you recommend it to a friend by saying, well, it's the book that's at the New York Public Library on the second floor, third shelf from the left, five books over. So that's how today's internet works, right? To get to this book, you have to fly to New York, go to the public library and find the specific place on the specific shelf where the book is supposed to be, or in this case, the specific server where this image from this NFT is supposed to be, right? But what if it's not there? What if someone moved it or someone tore out a page? Or what if when you get there, you realize that it was in your backpack the whole time or your neighbor had it? right? So that, again, is today's internet. And so it makes a lot more sense to just tell your friend the name of the great book that you just read and let your friend find that book by its name rather than its location. And so that is what IPFS does. So rather than retrieving content by where it is, you can retrieve content by what it is. So IPFS uses content addressing. So content on the web is addressed using cryptographic hashes, like a fingerprint of a particular piece of content, instead of by reference to a file located on a specific server. So you just need to know the hash of that content, and it will go grab that from wherever's closest, from your computer if it's there or elsewhere. And if you already have it or someone near you has it, you can retrieve it from there. And so that is why the vast majority of NFTs, when you actually go down to the storage layer, are actually stored on IPFS. Wow. They're so fascinating. By the way, I'm curious if you know this offhand, what's the minimum number of seconds you can play of a piece of music without having to pay for the copyright? I guess we're not going to hear a small clip of Beastie Boys intergalactic. (laughs) (laughs) You were trying to come in with a soundtrack? It's queued up. It's ready to go. Only if we know how many seconds we could play. (laughs) It's not an unreasonable 
amount of time actually i believe i watch a lot of like music based like youtube stuff (laughs) and they're always like you know it's like like 15 seconds and then they cut it you know because they get in trouble a lot we get in trouble there's a yeah it would be fun to have like uh theme songs for do i do cryotherapy occasionally and they let you pick your song to freeze your butt off too so of course i went with the rocky song last time um All right, we'll pretend that's it. Yeah. All right. Now this is going to get taken off was YouTube. It, was, that our, was that our source code you had up there in the background, too, dude? I don't dude, know. It's like our tech. Come on. <laughs> so, Marty, you've been building for like five years. You guys just keep building, really pioneers in the space. What's next on the roadmap? Well, so it's funny that you used Intergalactic as the theme song for this episode. So in terms of IPFS, you know, I've just explained how IPFS works and it's called the interplanetary file system. And that sounds kind of silly, like, oh, ha ha, it's the interplanetary file system. But actually it was envisioned by Juan as this thing that can actually enable interplanetary or very long distance communications in a way that today's centralized internet doesn't work. So imagine sort of like I explained why IPFS works for NFTs. But this architecture also is actually really great for networking in space. And the reason for that is, imagine that you are very, very far away from Earth. So maybe you're on the moon or you're on Mars. From the moon, there's a multi-second delay for data to go back and forth. From Mars, there's a multi-minute delay for data to go back and forth. And so what happens is if you have to reference data by a particular location and go get it from a particular location, and let's say that location is Earth, Every single time you get that data, you have to take that delay, right? Even if you just got that data a day ago, or even if the person next to you just got that data, you have to every time go back to a particular server on earth and get that data and take that delay. And so that really just doesn't work in space with this delay. And IPFS actually fixes that. So with IPFS, instead of doing that, you can just look for a particular content ID And then what will happen is it'll get that data from whoever's closest. So let's say there's a satellite flying by that already has that data. It'll get it from there. Or if another device near you already has the data, it'll get it from there. And one particular device needs to take the delay once, let's say getting it from Earth, and then everyone around them has access to that particular piece of data. So this actually is intended to be something that enables interplanetary communications and networking. And so one of the big things that we announced in Davos, Josh, where I met you, was we actually just announced that the Filecoin Foundation has a partnership with Lockheed Martin, where we are working to use IPFS in space. And so that was my very exciting announcement earlier this year. And that's something that we are actively working on and really, really exciting stuff to finally see the vision of IPFS being interplanetary actually coming to fruition. Wow, that's exciting. And I'm sure that's a multi-year process to pull that off. So yes, and right now we're basically in the exploratory phase where we're basically identifying what makes sense for the demonstration mission. And so we're being pretty opportunistic there. And really looking at, okay, what are the different missions where we could actually get a payload on? Also looking at what are the things that we're going to need to do in order to make sure that IPFS is working with the hardware that it needs to be working with. But 
it really is going to depend on what missions we can kind of tag along with. And Lockheed's helping us identify that. And our first phase is going to wrap up at the end of August. So really kind of exciting stuff. That's really cool. And we know Kyle, of course, who has done a lot of space NFT type of work. He's based in LA. So happy to connect you with Kyle and all the amazing stuff he's doing. And that was a blast in the past for me because in a former life, I was doing some government consulting and I was actually working on general aviation pilot service improvement with Lockheed Martin. So flying things around in the most efficient and impactful way, that's Definitely some of their bread and butter and a great partner for such an ambitious project. So good stuff. Yeah. Hey, our buddy Mike Mongo is going to be up there pretty soon doing some fun stuff. So maybe he can throw something in his backpack. Jeff, I'm like thinking some ideas for NFCLA 2023 here. There's something fun that's like underneath the surface here. We just have to figure it out. We'll see. Last question for you, Marta, before we head over to Edge Quick Hitters. What else is inspiring you in the Web3 space? There's so many cool projects, so many different people doing so many different things. Like, what gets you jazzed? So the things that really get me jazzed are really the things that are working on building, using this technology to build a decentralized version of the internet. I always say for me, when it comes to cryptocurrency, the price is the least interesting thing about cryptocurrency. Like, I think what's really interesting is the technology, all the cool things you can do with the technology, and really the projects that are building alternatives to big tech and creating the next generation of the internet. So those are the things that I really find inspiring and the reasons that I'm working on the Filecoin project. Seems like you're in a great spot to explore those passions and interests. So amazing stuff. Thanks so much for sharing all of that with us. Hey there, NFT space cadet. Let's zoom in on the globe from outer space today to Abbott Kinney Boulevard in Venice Beach, LA. Let me show you a cosmic tech beacon that shines out among the bustle of fashion, art, and food there. It's a thriving software dev, data science, and design studio known as AE Studio, where scores of the sharpest minds have come together to help founders and execs create software and machine learning solutions that are not only profitable and increase our agency as humans, but that give us that warm, fuzzy feeling that elegant tech so wonderfully does. AE's breadth of talent allows them to build anything from instillvideo.com It's a health, fitness, and wellness app that makes your chakras tingle to award-winning brain-computer interface solutions that could quite literally bend our minds. Oh, and keep an eye out for Token Runners, their NFT white-label marketplace, as well as our highly anticipated NFT drop, Boomer NFT. Now, for all you DGENs who strive to shed the cummerbund and pearls comes a jaw-dropping, awe-inspiring partnership not seen since the heyday of Shaq and Kobe, It's called Edge of AE Studio, and you can find out all about it at edgeofae.com. That's right, this full-service, soup-to-nuts, end-to-end, whole-enchilada NFT service can help you, yes, you, Randy, launch your NFT project. Edge of NFT and AE Studio have come together like Voltron to get your project in gear so you can hightail it straight to the moon, stardom, and maybe even your own private yacht. Go to edgeofae.com to find out more. That's edgeofae.com. Actual results may vary depending on moon landing location, domain of stardom, scale and model of yacht, as well as weather scale model of yacht or actual yacht. We do want to shift gears a little bit and head over to Edge Quick Hitters, as I mentioned. So these are those 10 questions we ask every guest of the show. It's just a fun and quick way to get to know you a little bit better. And we're looking for short 
single word or few word responses, but we may dive a little deeper here or there. You ready to get after these? I'm super excited. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Edge Cricketers, here we go. Question number one. What is the first thing you remember ever purchasing in your life? So my first job in high school, I was working for a local newspaper and I got my first paycheck and I bought this purse with it that had like a full-size clock on it, which I thought was very forward thinking at the time, but that fashion never really caught on. So that's what I remember (laughs) as my first purchase. Yeah. And there's some, obviously there's a storage component to that first purchase. But I, I don't know if that was intentional or subconscious, but I had to bring that to the surface there. I feel like there's also like a Beastie Boys reference there or something. Oh, so like a big really? clock on a chain or something. I think that's Flav of Flav, bro. That's Flav of Flav. Let's get that straight. <laughs> get as close Let's as get we that can. Straight. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love all of that. I'm definitely using this again. I don't think I've ever told anyone about that clock first, this by the way. Question. Maybe it's obvious to everyone else. Was that like a hip hop type statement of the purse, or just like, hey, it's just a clock on a purse? Like, it's just cool. That I just way. thought it was very cool. It was like a full size <laughs> clock, nice. as like the entire purse face was a working, operable full size <laughs> awesome. clock. I just thought it was very cool. It seemed very ahead of its time, but maybe it was, and its time just has not yet come. But it certainly, <laughs> certainly was memorable. The, yes, exactly. It's time has not yet come. That was not intentional, but yes. So that was what I first remember purchasing with my first paycheck from the local newspaper. Nice. Solid. solid. Hey guys, we can get these clock purses on Etsy for $140 <laughs> right now. You're already looking, bro? Nice. Yeah, I'm like curious. I'll what make you clock? one for 140 bucks, dude. <laughs> <laughs> I'll buy a person a clock from Walgreens for 12 bucks. Question number two. What is the first thing you remember ever selling in your life? Further to the newspaper theme, I actually sold newspaper ads for my school newspaper. So that is the first thing I can remember selling. Newspaper ads. Right on. Exciting. Not quite as exciting as the clock, but you know, the clock. Yeah. Yeah. Question number three. What is the most recent thing you purchased? I just purchased some hyper-realistic fake plants, which, which are just sort of like the best of all worlds because they really do look like real plants, but I never have to water them. So that was my exciting purchase over the weekend. Love that purchase. Question number four, what is the most recent thing you sold? Honestly, like my time fundamentally, right? Isn't that like kind of the idea behind all of this? I guess my time is what I, was, what I would say. I like it. All right. Question number five. What is your most prized possession? Well, it's not the clock purse. I no longer have the clock purse. Obviously it's my time for sure, but I think technically under the law, a cat counts as a possession as property. So I'm going to go with my cat. That does. That does. No, 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 no. Technically under the law, the cat owns you. (laughs) 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 I'm pretty sure that's inscribed in, in stone from. Do you have cats, Ethan? I don't know if we know this. No, no, I don't or have any cats. A cat? You no. don't? Oh, okay. No, they have me. No, I'm just kidding. I, I don't have any cats. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> All right. Question number six. If you could pass on one of your personality traits to the next generation, what would it be? One of the things I like the best about myself is I feel like I can explain things that are complex relatively simply, which is what I try to do in my policy work when I'm working with members of Congress. And I think ability to explain Things that are complex in a simple way with no jargon is definitely one of my favorite personality traits. 
Can you teach me how to then sort of paraphrase and explain what you explained to us to others? It's like, <laughs> that, that's like a whole other. I'm like, wow, I got it in the moment. That makes sense. Now, how do I actually convey this to others? That's that's the yes. next level. Exactly. Yes, that's that's the meta aspect of it. Yes, totally. I mean, like, if you can't explain it to a five year old, you don't understand it. Is my fundamental feeling about that. There it is. Question seven. If you could eliminate one of your personality traits from the next generation, what would it be? It's a great question. I think it fundamentally comes down to like, what are your bad personality traits? So bear with me. I met this girl once wearing Slytherin robes. She was like, maybe like 10. And I was like, oh, that's very interesting that you're a Slytherin and wearing Slytherin robes. That's really interesting. And she goes, well, Slytherins aren't evil. They're ambitious. And I was like, oh, that's really interesting. So I think I am actually fundamentally, I'm a Slytherin. So whatever the suite of Slytherin traits are, maybe the hyper ambitiousness, I think would be the answer to that question for me. I like it. Okay. We'll take that. Question number eight. If you could buy anything in the world, digital, physical service and experience that's currently for sale, what would it be? I'm a big experiences person. I'm not a big stuff person. And so it would definitely be an experience, definitely be, I think, vacation-related, perhaps of the tropical vacation variety, I would say. Definitely the vacation experience is the thing that I would like the most (laughs) right now. Yeah, I got a feeling it's kind of busy over there right now. When was the last (laughs) big vacay you took? Let's call it a week. Over the holidays. I took actually a ton of time off for the holidays, but there will be vacations in the near future. So I look look forward to those. (laughs) It sounds like you've earned it. All right. Question number nine. What did you do just before joining us on the podcast? Oh God, I was in back-to-back calls. I just put calls, just like stack them, right? Because it's like the most optimized because just back-to-back all, knock them all out and then actually try to have like time when you can sit down and think. So today is a back-to-back call day. Uh, Optimization of of time. Okay. Sticking, getting back to the theme here. Not necessarily like mental and physical well-being, but optimization of time, right? Yes, Uh, absolutely. (laughs) All right. Last one. Question 10. What are you going to do next after the podcast? So more back-to-back calls is the answer. That's an unsatisfying answer. I think later tonight, when it gets on the late end, I do like to do a high-tech treasure hunting game that's called geocaching. And I may do some of that late tonight. That may be my like end of my back-to-back call day. I may go out and do some geocaching later tonight. I love some geocaching. We may have something in the scavenger hunt, treasure hunt realm for NFTLA 2023. So keep an eye out for that. We'll see. Amazing. Awesome. It could be fun. Maybe we need your collaborative input yeah we should talk about that (laughs) that's definitely one of my hobbies for sure that is definitely relevant to my interests okay fun well that's edge quick hitters thanks so much for sharing with us e i heard we got a few hot topics to crush here what do you say you heard right let's crush some topics first hot topic sponsored hot topic asia's largest play to earn crypto expo is to kick off in bangkok august 10th to the 13th Play to Earn Hybrid Expo Asia, the world's first event focused specifically on the play to earn industry for the businesses only, is to be held this year in Bangkok, Thailand from August 10th to the 13th at the W Hotel Bangkok and also in the metaverse. There should be up to 250 physical C-suites and up to 2,000 virtual attendees expected from all around the world. The expo is to bring together the entire ecosystem of the P2E industry from guilds, venture capitalists, game developers, exchanges, launch pads, and key opinion leaders. 
Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that focus on the business side of things. And it just goes to show how much the economy of gaming is growing and really becoming one of the pillars potentially for future economy. Yeah. We were just talking about how gaming in general is just interesting for the space, the, the level of engagement that we get from like gaming episodes and topics, whether it's here or newsletter links, things like that. It's really through the roof as we look at our stats and everything. It's something really interesting we've been noticing and we've been having conversations about that. There's a need out there around content and information specifically related to this space, gaming in blockchain, even though it's still relatively nascent compared to gaming outside of blockchain. There's something there. There's something we need to explore further. Yeah, I think at the end of the day, people have pretty intense lives these days and gaming is a diversion and sort of something that's like engaging and fun is a part of our society. And I think there's been sort of this underlying question this year about what is it that's going to make blockchain gaming adopted by the masses. We just had a really interesting episode with Boss Fighters that's doing some really cool AR gaming stuff. And we talked about it there. And I think it's coming. And I think storing all this data would be really important. What do you think, Marta? Yeah, you know, it's so interesting when it comes to sort of Web3 and gaming. One of the things that I, you know, when people really started seriously talking about the metaverse, the thing that really stood out to me is, you know, who really gets the metaverse is gamers, right? Like who are already spending much of their lives in the metaverse. So I think it's really interesting, right? When you really think about the metaverse, how much that already exists in the gaming world. I also think like when you start thinking about, okay, what does like the future of the metaverse look like? I think it's really important to think about wanting that to be part of a open and decentralized universe, as opposed to something that's owned by Facebook or some other central intermediary, which is what we think about when we're thinking about the future of the metaverse. I'm going to only be in the metaverse if Facebook owns it. So I'm putting my foot down. (laughs) <laughs> Nobody is saying that. Nobody is saying that. <laughs> People are going along for the Facebook ride, but nobody's saying, I want my metaverse to be a Facebook metaverse. <laughs> oh, it's why. coming. It's coming, man. It's coming. <laughs> so this event, some other cool stuff about it, there's going to be like a pitch competition with a final winner of clearly it's, there must be some other factors at play, but the final winner could win up to $3 million of a pitch competition that they're going to be running. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, it looks like they got all kinds of sponsors in the mix, a bunch of VCs in the mix there. We'll see what it's comprised of, but guessing some form of investment and or in-kind stuff. But either way, big number for them to promote related to it. And there's not that much happening that's focused on gamers. There's a need for it. And this is what they're doing, of course, in Asia, uh, Southeast Asia. They've always been ahead of the curve when it comes to gaming, collaborative gaming, community gaming, gaming as an esport. So not surprised to see that they're leading the way on this front as well. Very cool. It looks like we have some kind of a ticket giveaway that they're collaborating with us on. Jeff, do you know any details on that? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, the organizers are going to kick out 10 tickets, virtual tickets to the virtual experience for this event. So keep an eye out on our socials and we'll give details for how to score these tickets. Sounds like a pretty sweet event. and don't want to miss it. Very cool. All right. On to the next topic. A UK court allows lawsuit suits to be delivered via NFT. All right, we'll just drop that into your uh, MetaMask wallet, sir. According to a Tuesday notice from UK law firm Guillaume Brone and Partners, a case brought by Fabrizio Daloya 
against Binance Holdings, Polneniex, Gate.io, OKX, and BitCub over allegations someone was operating a fraudulent clone online brokerage has resulted in a legal precedent offering a digital solution to serving someone. June 24th, the judge in the case allowed parties to be served by airdropping NFTs into wallets originally held by D.A. Loya, but stolen by unnamed individuals. Get out of here, dude. That's crazy. All right. I dropped this one in as I was in next week's episode, grabbing some questions for our edge quick hitters a little bit earlier. I saw this one in there. Our pre-production folks have put in as a guy, we got to drop this one in this episode, right? We got to get Marta's take on this. This is interesting, right? So we were talking earlier briefly about like Seth Green, like his ape getting stolen and whatnot. It's in a wallet somewhere. Like the equivalent to what you just described, E, is like someone dropping a subpoena in that person's wallet. They know they have the ape and they just drop it into the wallet. What is going on? This is interesting stuff. Marta, what do you think about this? That's super interesting. I will say, I think as a former litigator, serving legal documents, like actual service of process is one of those things that is so outdated and so difficult to do, right? This is where you end up with having to send like literal physical process servers to people, people whose job it is to just like hand people documents, which is wild, right? It's like one of these wildly outdated things. So I think it's really cool. I think it's cool that a court has allegedly allowed, I haven't looked at the documents themselves, but it sounds like reportedly has allowed service of process by actually serving someone via NFT. You certainly don't have to worry about being able to prove that they at least received it. (laughs) I don't know if they read it, but they clearly received it, which is pretty cool. Well, that's a tough one. What if I lost my seed phrase or something, right? Then you can't prove that I have seen it, like you said, right? Right. Exactly. I mean, I think it's interesting, right? It's definitely interesting. Definitely raises a lot of questions. I haven't looked at the documents themselves, but I do think that service of process is a shockingly outdated sort of thing. But I mean, just to give you like an idea, like sometimes you can actually give people formal legal notice of something via something like publishing something in a newspaper, which is kind of also very outdated and wild. So this whole area of law has a bunch of things that are not necessarily aligned with how things actually work in reality. And I think it's pretty cool that a court is actually thinking about, okay, well, if we're going to do things that are a little bonkers, may as well do them in a, in a way that's actually up to date with how people are actually experiencing the world. It's interesting. I mean, there's all kinds of different things you can program into an NFT, I guess. I imagine you should be able to figure out if somebody's viewed it at some point in some form or fashion within a particular wallet, right? There's got to be a way to program that, no? Totally. And I mean, I think it's really interesting. And I think one of the things that's weird about this area of law is it isn't necessarily just like, okay, well, if you can prove that someone read something, then you properly serve them, right? You have to like have checked the boxes, done the right thing. It's actually kind of wild. Like you wouldn't even believe some of the, like sometimes you can serve someone via like a FedEx box, like a commercial mail receiving agency. I remember I did that once. I served someone via the commercial mail receiving agency. And it was like this crazy bonkers process where the thing has to sit under California law. The physical papers have to sit in the Simra for like a certain number of hours. And then they have to be forwarded by the Simra, whatever, the FedEx worker to the last known address, but you then have to get the declaration. It's just wild. Like it is just wild. The things that you have to do to like check the box that you've properly served someone. And so the fact that you could make that in any way more aligned with reality is amazing. All right. We'll keep an eye out for interesting ways to serve people here. 
So look, Martin, I think that's hot topics for today. And I think that is bringing our time together for a close as enjoyable as it was. We want to make sure that listeners know where to follow you and all the fun things that you're working on, as well as Filecoin, Filecoin Foundation. Like, where should we direct people? Yeah, absolutely. So we have the Filecoin Foundation. We also have our 501c3 nonprofit that focuses on the decentralized web in general, which is called Filecoin Foundation for the Decentralized Web, FFDW. So you can follow Filecoin Foundation, you can follow FFDW, and you can follow me on Twitter, or you can check out fil.org, fil.org, which is the Filecoin Foundation's website, or ffdweb.org, which is the FFDW website. And I'm at Marta Belcher on Twitter. There we go. Check it out, y'all. Okay. Well, I think we've reached the outer limit at the edge of NFTs for today. So thanks for exploring with us. We've got space for more adventurers on this starship. So invite your friends and recruit some cool strangers that will make this journey all so much better. How? Go to Spotify or iTunes right now, rate us and say something awesome. Then go to edgeofnft.com to dive further down the rabbit hole. Lastly, be sure to tune in next time for more great NFT content. Thanks again for sharing this time with us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's so much fun. Absolutely. The views and opinions expressed on the Edge of NFT podcast reflect solely those views and opinions of the show creators and its guests. We're learning as we go, just like you. Please make sure to do your own research. Our podcast is not financial advice. There are multiple strategies and not all strategies fit all people. You understand that you are using any and all information available on or through this podcast at your own risk.